whatever happens, Britain is going to be divided. This does not mean that the United Kingdom will be in any way less united. The impact of 2016 on the nation's psyche appears stark. This country is more divided than ever. We're not going to heal some of these divisions. Racist populism is out of the bottle. Can we salvage a functional nation out of two groups who increasingly despise each other? Lifetime. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. You're deliberately seeking out opinions that reinforce your views? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Polarisation is the buzzword of the moment. Over the past two years, if you've turned on the news, the overriding story you'll hear about our politics, about our society, is that we've never been more divided. A great schism has apparently opened up, and some people think it's threatening to destroy democracy itself. Many fear that the very future of the United Kingdom is now under threat. Many voters are concerned that the democratic process could be at risk. I alone can fix it. I am your voice. Some people blame the filter bubble and big tech and the ways that nefarious actors are using them to manipulate us. Cambridge Analytica scandal. Others say it's all about economic anxiety and inequality. The anti-poverty charity Oxfam says the UK is one of the most unequal countries in the developed world. Perhaps there's something deeper going on, something psychological that's bringing about a return to tribalism and wall building. So, you're listening to Polarised, a new podcast from the RSA. We'll be here to try to understand these forces that are driving us further apart. Are they real? can be done about them. It's presented by me, Ian Leslie, and by Matthew Taylor. The podcast isn't about orchestrating an argument between people with opposing views. There's plenty of places where you can hear that, but it's about trying to understand the polarising political moment that we're living through right now. We should probably say who we are. Matthew, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yes, so I run the RSA. I've been doing it for uh, 12 years. Um, Before that, I worked for Tony Blair, which is something you have to kind of apologise for now, I guess, but um, as an advisor to him in Downing Street. um, I sometimes say that I was asked to do two things for Tony. One was to make sure he stayed popular and the other was to make sure New Labour stayed in control of the Labour Party. So th- these are not things <laughs> that I talk about a great deal. Yeah. Uh, so I was an insider. Um, I worked for the Labour Party as well and I ran a think tank called IPPR. So I guess, you know, I'm just a, an insider who's lived in policy, politics and that bubble for about 25 years. And uh, what about you, Ian? So I'm a, a journalist, a writer, an author. I, I've never worked in politics, but I sometimes write about it. I combine careers actually in in writing and in advertising. Um, I've written a couple of books, uh, one about the psychology of liars and and lying, considering I'm interested in advertising and politics, it seemed sort of inevitable and pertinent at at the moment. Um, And another book about curiosity and and, and the sort of desire to learn and and, and find out, um, which I hope will will be a component of, of this series. And I'm now writing a book about persuasion and how the psychology of communication and conflict, um, which is obviously uh, a, a big part of, of what we'll be talking about when we talk about the sort of polarisation of, of the political sphere. One of my big hang-ups is I've never managed to write a book. Well, I wrote a book with my father many years ago, but it wasn't very good. In fact, it was embarrassingly poor. But 
Uh, you've written books. So just, I just, I'm trying to do it, but I can't do it. So I think I, I will defer to you at all times because you've actually managed to sit there and do it. Is there anything about me that you find impressive? No. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, what, the difference between us is that I, I like to sort of uh, pontificate uh, and you actually like to, to do stuff. So, you know, you've worked in government. So, uh, uh, you know, you're more of a, more of a doer. I, I'm more of a sit around and talker. Thank you for that. Those words, those words of comfort. People are absorbing an entirely different reality. The world is so polarized now. You've got Donald Trump and social media and people screaming at each other. Are you part of that polarization? It's a good question. I don't think so. So in a minute, we'll be diving into the world of political sociology. Trying to make that sound really sexy. Um, actually, it is. And asking whether or not we've become a nation of two tribes, liberals and authoritarians. But before we get stuck into our main topic, we thought in this era of extremes, we should be upfront about our own fiercely held opinions uh, on whatever the subject uh, that's currently kind of seizing us is um, in a segment that we're going to call Stop Polarising Yourself. Ian, what's getting on your nerves? Um, what's getting on my nerves for, for the last sort of, well, actually for, for quite a while, I, I get really annoyed by the attacks on the BBC, which which come from all directions now. It used to be that it was it was more often that you see attacks on the BBC from the right because it's you know it's a public institution, and there was a kind of sense that it that it's full of liberal lefties. You now see the most virulent strains of attacks on it from from the Corbynite left. And also from the kind of hardcore Remainers. And it seems to have just become this game of, of, of kick a ball where you, you, you kick the BBC if your view, your strongly held view, is not the sort of dominant mode of, of, of discussion on, on the BBC. And people can always kind of point to things and say, oh, well, you know, that's just, just uh, you're not balanced enough or your balance is fake and so on. What they're not taking responsibility for is that if you undermine trust in in the BBC, you know, we've got nothing left. Talking about are we a nation of liberals and authoritarians, we'll get into it in a minute. The BBC is one of the things I think that's kind of standing between us and a full-blown culture war uh, like they've moved towards um, in the US. So I just say to people, you know, be very good to be critical, sceptical of what the BBC does. Of course it is. But be very careful about about undermining its its fundamental authority because we need it more than ever. Now, I, see, I think, Ian, we could do the BBC as a topic for one of these conversations, actually. I think it is a polarising issue. I, you know, as someone who appears on the BBC quite a lot, I agree with you. But the, 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 the catch is this. Ask me, ask me who's to blame. Who's to blame? The BBC, you? I'm afraid. Really? Yeah. But we'll have to get into that in a different okay. conversation. It's because job. the BBC wanted to set itself up above all others in this particular... If you put yourself there, if you say we are the only public service broadcaster, we are the voice of the nation, unfortunately, you then you then are the subject of this kind of constant critique about the fact that you're not living up to the position in which you've placed yourself. So I think the BBC, much as I love it, runs in my family... You know, it's kind of partly responsible. But should we talk? Should we, let's, let's come let's, back to let's that. Let's do yeah. this. Yeah, let's do this some other time. Yeah? is now split as never before. North versus South, young versus And it's old. not just the North and South. Fissures have developed within families, workplaces, neighbourhoods. But above all, it's the bitterness and acrimony on both sides of the debate that's come as a shock. It was our version of the culture wars. 
Uh, we thought we'd start the series by asking, how divided is Britain, really? You don't have to work in the White House to get the impression that politicians everywhere are building big, beautiful walls. Referendums and elections, by definition, divide us into rival factions. But there's something different going on at the moment, or at least that's what many people think. Now, divides in politics aren't new. That's what democracy is about. But are they deepening? Are they becoming more bitter, more entrenched? And also, are the nature of those divides changing? Does the old left-right split still apply? Or are there new, different splits emerging in British politics? Commentators have written at great length about left versus right, about the young versus the old. That was something we heard about this week from the Resolution Foundation. We hear about somewheres versus anywheres. But is there one big divide all of those are missing or that runs through all of those? Are we, have we become a nation divided between liberals and authoritarians? To help us understand whether that liberal authoritarian divide uh, is the kind of new big schism in British society. On the line, we've got Paula Surridge, a political... I want to call you Sturridge. A lot of people get that wrong, Paula. They didn't used to, but a certain footballer has, has made <laughs> that a lot more common. <laughs> yeah, right. OK, well, I will remember it's Surridge. You're a political sociologist, senior lecturer at the University of Bristol. You're an all-round expert on public opinion. We couldn't have anyone better to guide us through this conversation. Hello, Paula. <laughs> Hi, hi. So let's start with the divide I grew up with, uh, which is the traditional left, right, Labour, conservative uh, divide. Now, in many ways, you, you could argue that actually our political parties seem to have reverted more to that left, right position than in the past. You know, when I was involved in frontline politics, it's all about triangulation and winning the centre. That doesn't seem to be what's going on. So <laughs> when, when it comes to public opinion, does it makes sense? Is it useful to think about that traditional left-right divide? It is still useful to think about that divide, certainly. It hasn't gone away completely, as some American political scientists have claimed recently. It is still important and it is still a good indicator of how people will, will choose a party, how they will vote. But it's certainly not the only indicator. And I think, for me, what has been changing is not so much that the left-right has gone away, but now we've got this kind of overlay of another dimension. Just in case our listeners are, are, are wondering where they are on this spectrum, I, I, as I understand it, there are kind of is it like five questions that that you that you ask to find out how authoritarian. Can you run those questions? Can you remember what those questions are? So I list, just, just so our listeners can check. So we have. Um, they're all whether you agree or disagree. Um, young people don't have enough respect for traditional values. So again, a traditionalism yeah, thing. Yeah, okay, okay. Censorship is necessary to uphold moral values. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be tolerant of those who lead unconditional lifestyles. Yeah. For some crimes, the death penalty is the most appropriate sentence. And people who break the law should be given stiffer sentences. Questions two to five, I've got those. Going back to the first one again, though, because that was the only one where I didn't feel my kind of liberal knee-jerk response. Go go (laughs) do the first one again. So young people don't have enough respect for traditional values. Oh, yeah, I don't know. So this is my age. This is my age. It's changing. It does change as you get older. Traditional (laughs) values. I'm not, no, well, okay. I mean... What young people are a pain in the ass. That is a slightly different position, I think. That's a kind of sociological judgment <laughs> rather than a political. Ian, what did you find? Were you were you liberal on all of those? Ian, uh, yeah, I see what you mean about number one. You, but but uh, I don't know. I I, I think it, I, I guess I wouldn't phrase it as I wouldn't see it. I, I don't think of it as a problem with young people. But I do think some traditional values are sort of worth 
upholding. So maybe I'll be a bit stronger than than some some liberals on that question. On the others, I mean, they they were. I I'm fairly sort of squarely on the liberal side of them. The the, the death penalty thing is really interesting because I, I Paula, you will know, but but I I think it was a very strong predictor of the the Brexit vote. It would have been a strong predictor of the, the even more than than. Uh, economic status, even more than education? I don't think it's more than education. Okay. So, yeah, definitely more than the economic status. So the the, the, the kind of economic values, they don't predict referendum vote once you properly control for education. The death penalty item predicts it, but it, I think it only predicts it in so much as it is a marker of this broader scale. So actually this scale is a really strong predictor of referendum voting. If you use any one of those items on their own, you would pick that relationship up. So I'm a sociologist uh, too, Paul. So we love a sociologist (laughs) and we we love concepts and we we love... We love matrix, two by, two, uh, you know, rarely does a sociological uh, theory uh, avoid a two by two matrix. You've I love a two by two matrix. This is a two by two matrix you're describing, aren't you? There's these four positions, authoritarian lefties and liberal lefties and authoritarian righties. And is that, is that right? It is, it is sort of right. I tend, although, although I do, I am a sociologist, I tend to divide that space into nine positions Nine. Wow. Oh, now so we're, we're talking. talking. <laughs> Is this a cube we're talking about here? <laughs> Matthew's getting very excited. No, 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 no. Nine <laughs> positions in, in the flat two-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. So I, I divide each of the dimensions into three. Okay. So you have got the kind of left liberals on one end and the right authoritarians in the other, but you've also got some in the centre. So on both of those um, dimensions, you've got a centre group as well. Um, and this allows me to talk about a group I'm really interested in, which are the left authoritarians because they're quite a big group in society, something in the region of 20%. I wouldn't want to be too precise about that. But of course, they're very, that they cross-pressured in terms of how they might vote. So they're very left-wing economically. They're in favour of nationalisation, redistribution, welfare state. But then they're on the authoritarian end of the other scale. So they favour immigration control. And they're not particularly keen on um, gender inequality and those kinds of things. Um, and they're a group that are more or less unrepresented by our current political system. I, I guess part of the, the genius of the Leave campaign was that it targeted those people pretty well. Because if you say you, you, the two main promises of the Leave campaign were we're going to control immigration and uh, you're going to get more money for the NHS. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Populism, it seems to me, is precisely the kind of melding of, of, of those two things, as we saw in the Leave campaign. But just before we get into that, can we look at this issue of the relationship between populism and authoritarianism? So there's sometimes a tendency to conflate populism and extremism. Now, extremism has tended to be authoritarian and also kind of either very right wing or very left wing. But populism is this kind of interesting kind of hybrid which fits into your, you know, your authoritarian uh, analysis. So should we understand populism as being fundamentally an, an, an authoritarian position? I don't think we should. So it would be entirely possible to have populism that's much more based on economics than on these kind of issues. These issues are the basis for populism in most of Europe and arguably in the US at the moment as well. But most of the scholars of populism, of which I don't really count myself as one, so I'm drawing on their work here, have argued that populism itself is what they call a thin-centred ideology. It needs to connect itself to something else to have answers to most of the questions that politics needs to answer. 
But doesn't it normally connect itself to the idea of the strong man, the strong nation? It has done that, definitely. It has certainly connected with these kind of authoritarian values. But they are distinct. You can measure them distinctly. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it's not always authoritarian. Um, populism isn't always authoritarian, is it? No, not always. I mean, you, you, a left-wing populism is not necessarily authoritarian. I don't know, I kind of, isn't the heart of populism the idea that the reason that we have problems is because the elite is out of touch. There are actually very simple solutions to our issues. And what we need is a strong person who comes in and imposes the simple... There's nothing really complex or, about or, the world. We, the world, what the we world need is, is simple and we need a strong person. Is that person. how you describe a Corbyn, Corbynism? And, and some people have argued Corbyn's a populist. Yeah. And I'm not sure I would, but some people certainly have um, made that argument. So there isn't this necessary connection between the two. Although if you look across Europe... You see in, the, in most of the parties, you do see these, these two things going together. And what we also see across Europe is many of those parties starting to shift their economic positions a little bit to the left because actually most of their supporters are more left-wing economically um, and therefore they've got a better chance of winning more of them over when they, when they take slightly more left-wing positions on economic issues. So yeah. what is it that's happened to us, Paul? I mean, have, <laughs> you would have said you would have said in ten, fifteen years ago that that then you know the nonstop march of liberalism you know would continue uh, forever. Uh, to what extent has that march stopped? And uh, what is the evidence that we are becoming uh, aggregately more authoritarian? Actually, there's very little evidence that aggregately we're becoming more authoritarian. So if you look at the average position on these scales over time, it's very stable. It's very stable right back into the 80s. But of course, the groups of people making that up are changing over time. We've got more. Edu- we've got a group of more educated people, which should be a liberalising force. And then at the other end of the scale, we've got people living longer, which is having the opposite effect because it's keeping those more authoritarian voters in the electorate that bit longer all the time. So it's a, it is a complicated mix of things that, that lead us to where we are. So in, instead of it, there isn't an aggregate move to, towards authoritarianism um, or, or liberalism, but the, the, what's happening is that both groups are kind of hardening and becoming stronger and more entrenched in their positions. So in a sense, going back to the, to our question at the beginning, we're, we're becoming a nation of, of two uh, sort of opposed groups in a way that we weren't necessarily before, so we're much more divided than ever. Yeah, I mean, we are becoming a bit more polarised. And I think over time what's happened is that that dimension that I was talking about, that liberal authoritarian dimension, has become more salient to people. So um, some of the work I've done suggests that if you look back to kind of 92, 97 elections, the left-right dimension predicts things fairly well. As you move through the new Labour years, and I suppose the appeal to the voters becomes a little bit less polarised in terms of that left-right position, certainly in the minds of voters, if we can kind of put aside the objective things that were going on, in the minds of voters, the parties were seen as as much, much closer together. And as a result of that, voters have to make choices on a different range of issues, and that's when these issues start to become much, much more important. One of the kind of polarizations that happens at the dinner parties in my house, you know, I thought I'd say that because it makes me sound ridiculous, but it is true. Um, the po- a polarization I notice is a polarization between those who say you need to understand people whose opinion you have to understand Brexit voters. You have to you have to kind of understand, read the books about Trump voters. 
reach out, as it were, to to those with authoritarian populist tendencies versus those who say, no, you shouldn't reach out to them at all. The reason they do this is because they're not very educated and you've just got to kind of continue to bang on about the fact the world's not really like... Do you think... I know this is... You're a sociologist, not a kind of counsellor, but do you think <laughs> that, you know, one should reach out to people? Is, is there a basis for Liberals to reach out to authoritarians or, or, or are they just completely different kind of discourses? Well, I think there is a place for people to reach out and to try and and to try and understand each other a little bit better. Um, I I'm really opposed to this. Well, you know, the kind of they're just stupid argument, which you have I have heard um, using education as a marker of intelligence, which is entirely problematic in the first place. Um, and I don't think that's helpful. But it does also highlight the way in which both ends of this scale use very similar ways of talking about each other. When you interview or look at those those liberal positions in the immediate aftermath after the after the referendum vote feeling kind of shocked and my, I don't recognize my country and all this kind of language was actually very similar to the language of these of these left authoritarians or ukip voters leave voters however we want to characterize them before the referendum so that was the kind of things they were saying I don't recognize my country um you know what's happening these kind of things so I think there's been this kind of lack of understanding on both sides for a really long time and I don't think it's you. I don't think I don't think it's good for our democracy to dismiss, dismiss it. You're talking about maybe as many as as one in five of these voters, and I don't think it's helpful to just keep saying, "Well, actually, you're just wrong." Paul, you've described something at the beginning and the end of life, which is implicated in this kind of authoritarian liberal divide. What about in the middle of your life? So, yes, we kind of know that more educated people are less likely to be authoritarian. Yes, we know that older people are more likely to be authoritarian. What are the other factors? Is um, a lot of people say economic insecurity? A lot of the analysis in America about Trump and all that is is that what is driven people to the adopting uh, a particular kind of politics is that sense of economic insecurity. On the other hand, we know in Britain that much more diverse communities tend to be more liberal, um, uh, communities with fewer people from other kind of ethnic backgrounds tend to be uh, slightly more hostile to immigration and things like that. And also, finally, there's a kind of individ- your individual life, which is you might be merrily go along as an authoritarian, and then your you know your son or daughter says, "Well, I'm tra- I'm trans," and that must affect your values. So, what what is it that drives people to become authoritarian or drives them equally to become liberal? What are the things that that, that lead to a kind of transition in our views? Well, I don't think we've got anything like enough evidence on that because obviously it takes really long time long long studies to be able to see how how patterns change over the life course but karen stenner's work in the us and in the uk called the authoritarian dynamic um, she argues that economic threat or actually or any kind of perceived threat doesn't necessarily have to be economic can activate this authoritarian dimension so that people have these attitudes and it's only when they feel under threat that they get kind of activated and she she makes the argument for both ends of the scale so similarly you know, lots of the people now who are very vocally liberal were not really so vocally liberal before the referendum. Um, it's partly as a result of feeling threatened, feeling that their worldview is threatened in the way that the authoritarians felt threatened prior to the referendum. And um, so it can be both. It can be kind of a worldview threat, but it can also be an economic threat. Final question for me, Paul. If you were given an unlimited sum of money and told you had to create a political party that was most likely to win an election, regardless of your own values... What kind of party would be the kind of the the best design to maximize support? Is it kind of is it left authoritarianism? Is that the kind of zeitgeist? I think it's actually left 
centrism. So left centrism. That sounds that, that sounds like what I used to be involved in. I thought I, <laughs> you said the right thing, Paul. You don't mean you don't mean New Labour, do you? <laughs> no, I don't mean New Labour because I think New Labour are part of the problem. Oh, okay. Um, but in in, t- in terms of New Labour, we're in the probably right. Of, roughly the right place in terms of the left-right dimension. They weren't in the right place in terms of that liberal authoritarian dimension. And that's why you have to think about it in this two-dimensional space. Because they weren't authoritarian enough. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Right, so it's new Labour, but, but with a bit of... Anti-immigration. Of, a bit of, bit of muscle, basically. A bit of kind of anti... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of what you've seen certain people in the Labour Party stand off or kind of kind of liberal economically, but possibly not so liberal socially. Well, look, Paula, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Before we go, in each episode, we'll be sharing something that we've read, that we think you should know about, that might have been buried in in your newsfeed. And I was really struck recently by a piece uh, by Benedict Pringle in Political Advertising. It was online. All about why there are fewer election posters in people's windows. And as soon as you kind of read about it, you go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. We used to see a lot of those. around Uh, and now we see some but it does feel like there's not as many as there used to be um we've had local elections uh recently in some parts of the country so you might have noticed noticed this yourself so why is it happening there's a couple of theories one of them uh came from i think from ian dale on on lbc who who said look what's going on here is that people are afraid that they 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 take a political stand of any kind, then they'll be subject to aggression, uh, particularly on on social media. So Benedict's suggestion is that the old social uh, kind of norms that bound people together uh, have decayed. So in other words, it's it's more of a, a social risk. You know, you used to be able to put up a Labour poster and a Tory poster in your neighbourhood. You'd have a pretty good idea that the people in your neighbourhood, most of them agreed with you. These days, you're not sure. The risk you're going to fall out with your neighbours is greater. What do you think about that, Matthew? Um, yeah, and no, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I, I, my, my problem with that, the idea, the, the kind of idea that you think if you put the poster up, you'll be subject to reprisals is that actually, you know, there was a lot of bitterness around the referendum, but there were loads of people putting posters up around the uh, around the, the leave referendum. And also the Scottish referendum, which I think got even more animated, though, you know, I think there's a lot of public exp- displays of people's. Yeah views about that. So I was kind of thinking, well, why do we... Because, you know, I'm still a member uh, of the Labour Party and nobody sent me a poster to to stick in the window and that's happened in the past. So um, I I think it it, it is kind of this theory about fragmentation, but actually, what is the point of a poster? I mean, nobody votes for a party because they see a poster. It's not a persuasion technique. It doesn't contain an argument, does it? Yeah. I think it's a norming mechanism. So I think the way that it worked was to say, if you have enough conservative posters in your kind of suburban area, it tells people that voting conservative is the normal... It's what we do around here. It's exactly what we do around here. And similarly for labour in working class areas. And and now that's gone. So in a sense, any sense in which people voted simply because that's what we do around here doesn't really exist. That, That is not a motivator for voters anymore. So therefore, 
there's no point in posters because I'm sensing it's not just people not putting them up. It's that the parties aren't really asking people. I mean, we, when I was involved in campaigns, you have poster teams. They go around for two days before, when the campaign started, getting people to put posters up or those kind of estate agent type boards in their gardens. I, I, I don't think parties are pushing it so hard. But, so now that's on Facebook. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, I think people are, you know, focusing on, on on social media. But as I say, I just think that p- the people don't feel that the kind of well, neighbours on either side are voting Labour, so therefore I will. I just think people don't think that's how people behave anymore. I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether it's true. Yeah, I don't know whether to be encouraged or, or, or depressed about this. And in, in a way, it's it's um, depressing that people don't want to kind of, you know, be visibly involved in in in, in politics. Um, and that and perhaps it's depressing that people aren't in kind of neighbourhoods where they feel they're in shared values. On the other hand, maybe it's good that we're not all kind of sorting into neighbourhoods where everyone thinks the same thing. <laughs> that, that you know, neighbourhoods are, are kind of uh, uh, communities are, are mixes of different political views. Maybe that's a, a good thing. What I always find interesting, of course, is that when the two, well, this is the two parties, but when parties meet each other in the streets, the canvassing teams, and of course, the interesting thing is. You know, you always feel you've got more in common with the other side than yeah. you have with people who aren't so crazy as to spend their Thursday evening knocking on strangers' doors and asking them to vote on the basis of, of course, you always say it's your vote that will make all the difference. There is still, I think, a more greater commonality between all political activists than there is between political activists and those who don't give a monkeys. I think that's a very nice note to end on for this week. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling especially generous, we'd be grateful if you could leave a a rating or a review. It really helps other people discover this podcast. Or tell us something else that you think we should be talking about in terms of... We've got the BBC today. Give us another thought, uh, something else that you think is polarising our country, and we'll talk about it. Indeed. If you you want to get in touch about anything like that, then email us, rsa.radio at rsa.org.uk or find us on Twitter. Um, I'm at Mr. Ian Leslie. How many followers? Very formal. Oh... I don't know. Follow him at RSA Matthew. Polarised was presented by me, Ian Leslie, and by Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield, with help from Alex Atak in Bristol. And we were brought to you by the RSA. See you next time. <laughs>